Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Sustainable Culture Podcast. My name is Jet, and this season we have been exploring the different ways we can expand our current definition of community depending on our perspective. Last time, Mari Gilgi spoke of knowing the motivations behind our passions and convictions to the level of being at rest with our trauma and grief. Ooh, why do I care so much about saving the elephants? Why? (laughs) What's up with that? Where did that come from? How come I'm always there for a protest or an environmental panel discussion on climate change and I never show up for my family, especially during the tense times? For example, if you haven't checked that out yet, I highly recommend it. I absolutely loved that discussion. Now, before I get to our next guest, I actually want to answer a question from one of our listeners. Thanks to Vaughn, by the way, for sending this out. It is an absolutely fantastic question. Thank you, Vaughn. Vaughn says, hey, Jet, I've got a question on plastic versus glass. I try to buy things in glass whenever possible, but I'm curious to know what kind of difference that really makes. I'm always disappointed to find when companies ditch glass to cut costs. Is that a fair general assumption to always go with glass? Well, (laughs) truly, there's enough here for an entire podcast episode all to itself and will probably happen at some point. But I've got a few key takeaways to help you folks as a flash reference for when you're thinking about which one you'd rather buy. Now, there is a superb article on the entire breakdown between plastic versus glass by the really popular blog Going Zero Waste. Highly recommend checking that out for a wealth of information related to this. It's called Which is Better for the Environment, Glass or Plastic? I'll leave a link in the description so you can find it. Here's how I think of it when I'm shopping. Do I really need to buy it in the first place? Will I be able to recycle it properly if I do? Only about a third of glass, give or take, is recycled, and it doesn't really break down. We actually have a shortage, believe it or not, of the sand used, and that sand that is used to make glass typically comes from the bottoms of waterbeds, which to me, brings up a whole slew of environmental questions that I do not have time for in this intro. But glass can be recycled over and over and over again many, 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 many times, something to consider. Now, plastic is way worse in terms of emissions and fossil fuel usage. No contest. Only about 9% of plastic is recycled, and it can only be recycled so many times, unlike glass. When plastic degrades, it spreads toxic chemicals and microplastics into the natural ecosystem, and sometimes even our food and water supplies. So a whole lot of bad stuff related to that. I could do an entire episode simply on microplastics, which is actually in the thought processes these days. So, But hopefully that will at least help you at a bird's eye view. Now, today the charming and intelligent Brian Sigwin returns to finally conclude our discussion that we started all the way back in June of 2021 called What does community mean to you? If you haven't heard that first part yet, it's episode 17, if you want to check that out. Throughout the season, I've been asking folks to play with the idea of redefining the who and what is included in a community, and today we focus on that to imagine it a bit more vividly than we had time for in our other discussions. How do you feel belonging in your community? Do you feel like you even belong in your community? Where is home to you? Where does it feel like home? what or who feels like home, and how do those distinctions affect your perspective on what or who a community is even composed of. Towards the end, we get into the whole ownership versus relationship dichotomy, and it reminds me of this quote from Satish Kumar that goes, we have to shift our attitude of ownership of nature to relationship with nature. The moment you change from ownership to relationship, you create a sense of the sacred. And I think that perfectly encompasses the energy behind the notions presented here today in regards to how we see our community and the creatures around our community and our relationships with the creatures and people we live around. So without further ado, let's get started with episode 21. What does community mean to you? Part two.
I know that it's been a minute since we got into this. It's been, I looked at and I, it, it's, I was blown away when I saw the date. It was June. <laughs> I was thinking it was like uh, August or something. Yeah. I was thinking wow. the same thing. I was like, maybe it's August, potentially even beginning of September. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Six months later. So it's it's great to have you, dude. And, I, you know, it's always, I always really love our conversations. Uh, it's really fun to talk to you consistently. So Likewise. So to kind of start us off, I mean, we spent last time kind of playing with, you know, our personal definitions of community, more of an open conversation. And so to continue the discussion, we wanted to explore the qualifications of which beings, humans, plants, animals, and even landmarks or areas of land, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, um, can belong to a community. So more directly, I'd like to allow ourselves to kind of wonder what this sort of community might look like. So let's start with the idea of, you know, the, this sense of belonging to a community. So Brian, does anything come to mind in your community that you would say belongs to you, your family, some form of you in a communal sense? And for that matter, am I even using the right word? Like is belonging the right word? I was kind of wondering when I was thinking of this question, if maybe cherish or like respect would be better. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree that uh, maybe belonging, belonging to me sort of has a sense of ownership. And I guess I have kind of a, not necessarily a problem with ownership, but I, I, I guess it's sort of maybe a cautious it, sort of caution towards yeah, it. Yeah. Because I think it kind of runs incongruent with life, right? Like the yeah. only thing that owns anything is time. Right. Uh, I, right. I, I don't outwardly own my home. I'm paying, uh, a mortgage along with my wife, uh, to own this home. But once I own it, I, I will have short ownership of it before I leave this world or before I pass it along to my children. Or yeah. Wow. To sell it. That's deep, right? So, Early. We're three, what, two and a half minutes in. That's deep. <laughs> the only true owner of anything is time, man. <laughs> welcome back to the and, podcast, uh, Brian. Holy crap. Hey, hey welcome. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this it, it's really interesting. That's that, fascinating. Though, yeah, know, a, a lot of the things that you know we're going to talk about today, I think, just overlap with a lot of things that have probably uh, you know transpired locally in our community, as well as just you know have affected my day to day too. Oh, absolutely. So, that won't be coincidental at all. No. So, uh, so yeah, when when we say belonging, you know, I think belonging probably could be interpreted as is not having the quality of ownership but i guess i that's immediately like my gut reaction to belonging kind of feels like ownership um yeah but i kind of like i i do like your your other descriptors like cherish and respect which made me think of like stewardship rather than belonging and and i think that's one of those things where then you know you kind of look at like oh are we talking about like the common good or the public good. And if we're looking at that, then we're seeing it all through an individual uh, lens, right? So we all have our own personal hierarchies. Yeah. And in that sort of sense of belonging or steward stewardship. So I think for me, like the one around here that really that I connect to is, is just the probably the geography and history for me on a personal level, good or bad, like, uh, you know, mm. this is the area I grew up in. So people, people always talk about going home and I always have this conversation with friends that, that I don't know if I've ever been somewhere that feels like home. I mean, this is my home. This is where I grew up, but, yeah. uh, I have, I have, you know, social ties to it and I, I feel connected to it in a natural resources type way, but then there's also some really disparate aspects of it that, that I don't feel connected to and that make it challenging to sort of exist in this area too. So, mm. 
I mean, that's true um, too. Like you're at, you're you're saying, if I may interject, about the idea of home. You know, I'm a military brat. <laughs> is my background. Yeah. So, the idea of home is different to me than maybe some others. You know, I, every time I meet someone who's like, "Yeah, I've lived here my whole life." childhood house i'm like what is that about i don't understand what that even is like i've moved more times in my life than i can even count and the thing about being a military brat that a lot of you know fellow military brats will be able to relate is that it's like encoded into your dna even after you move out it's like eight months you'll be living on your own and like eight months will go by and something pings in your brain you're like i have to move and i can't explain why and it's it's super weird and so home to me has always been more about like a feeling of belongingness I suppose as opposed to the place which is really fascinating I, I have felt more at home here in Coeur d'Alene than any other place that I've lived so I can tell you that much and so there's there is a sense of relating to your point that I can share in in terms of the fact that like there is a sense of like protection that I feel obligated to this area mm. in that sense but I suppose I guess what I'm bringing up is it's really interesting how you can kind of I suppose the interpretation of what you mean by home may change this a bit for you yeah and I, I think that probably says more about me than it does the and where I am right now <laughs> in my <laughs> own personal evolution and, and journey as being somebody who exists on the planet. Mm. But uh, I, I I really appreciate that perspective from somebody who, who has moved multiple times and how that imprints on you, sort of that maybe a feeling of restlessness being in one place for a number of years and being very aware when you hit sort of that, you know, whatever year itch of like, Oh, I gotta be in motion. I gotta go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe that gives you, maybe that really, I guess I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I think because you've lived so many places, you probably have a, a really different perspective on like that idea of uh, belonging or cherishing a respect of particular things that are, are from the natural world or uh, mm. in the sort of communal world. Yeah, that's, you know, I hadn't really thought, I suppose you just asking me makes me think, just think about how that is different in a way that I hadn't really thought about that. Like, yeah, I think I have sort of experienced that feeling like I mentioned that home is more of a feeling in my perspective in my life mm -hmm. I suppose maybe an experience I guess what I'm trying to say maybe experience is a better word and so I have experienced that sense of home belongingness if we're going to group those together I would group them together in this context mm -hmm. in things like you know I have a small collection of items things that are in pictures you know stuff that i hold very dear to me very sentimental things that that's one thing that i my brain immediately went to when you asked me that mm. so there there's that's one thing and i suppose it's less about the things in in my world it's less about the things and more of what the experiences that those things lead me back to right those are the yeah. things that i find so precious and like in those experiences i think in my life i have felt that sense of belongingness probably more than other times in my life because yeah we were military brats but just to give everyone context and maybe it's better to give context to answer your question better is that military bratness was the case like we moved around a lot but there was also just a lot of chaos surrounding it with just like dysfunctional family stuff in addition to that so there was this sense of chaos that just sort of was always there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in a way, my sense of home. Now, this is interesting now that I'm saying it out loud because I'm very introverted. And this actually seems to explain this a lot now that I'm saying this out loud. Because my sense of home, safety, belongingness, I suppose, has always been the retreat, the place, mm. the, the place that I go to 
really the experience I'm feeling when I'm in whatever place that is. So like right now, it's this house that I live at in Post Falls. And yeah. that place is where I feel the safest because that's where I'm stationed right now. But it's the experience, really. It's not so much the place. But that's just because I come from that perspective of not being in a place for that long <laughs> in any yes. given amount of time. But, you know, th so this experience for me is totally different living here this long. And, you know, I've been here many years now and uh, it's new for me. So this is yeah. this to me is new frontier, which is totally different well, from like your perspective or folks who grew up here or grew up anywhere. Yeah, completely. That's why I find it so fascinating. That's that's really interesting. And I think, you know, as a fellow at my core introvert, although I, I feel like I've become much more extroverted as I've aged, that yes, yeah, creating a, a comfortable den to exist in with artifacts that sort of trigger a feeling of home or connection or these milestones in your life, those things, those things are familiar to you. And I, I feel like I've worked towards trying to internalize those things more, keeping them more as a, uh, an internal record than an external record, like being in my forties and trying to like going through my in-laws property, clearing things out and coming across things, you know, um, and working with my wife to try to identify whether it's something that she'd want to hold on to or something that we would want to keep for our children. And, hmm. you know, it obviously meant something to them, but once that person passes, you know, without the, the story to make the connection, it is just an object. And, uh, we, we were just talking about that with our things and, you know, that, and then the, the burden of, of having to hold these things for a sense of belonging because of your connection with that person, um, out of obligation to some extent, you know? Yeah. Um, and what weird feeling that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously it's complicated and, uh, again, as unique to each person and their connection with their family and, and place too. So, well, I mean, the, the topic yeah. of belongingness and well, before before I even say this side note, I, I I think because of my background, I think that's maybe why I thought of the word cherish or something like that, because to me, mm -hmm. to me, it's different. I think belonging is something I can understand fully conceptually yeah. for someone like in your position. I can completely get that. But in my experience, I can. Well, I, maybe it's not. But and also like in my experience, because they're both valid, right? In my experience, yeah. I experience more of a cherishing sense because or emotion because for me, it's that, you know, connection to things which connects me to experiences. That's interesting. I guess I'm just voicing that out loud. Yeah. And I want to kind of use this because it's right connected to this. So earlier in the season, a gentleman, Mitch Cutter and I, he uh, is from the Idaho Conservation League. A fish biologist and he and I were suggest were a sort of approaching the idea of what a keystone species is he kind of in passing we didn't really spend a lot of time on it but he kind of I sort of approached the idea of maybe having a conversation about redefining what what a keystone species is like what defines a keystone species which I find really interesting because I love you know me I love picking things apart and redefining stuff and breaking the rules about that <laughs> So he's, he spoke about the need to understand what holds people together in a community. And I think these discussions are so connected in this way. So, yeah. so I'm wondering what, what do you think, what are some non-human beings, if you will, that you see holding Coeur d'Alene or perhaps the greater region together? Well, I guess I, I would probably go back to the, the answer to my previous question or to the previous question and in regards to probably like just the overall broadly the natural resources here. I mean, I think talking with people in the community who have relocated here, you know, if you, if you can't find political common ground, the common ground you can find is that people love the, the geography here. They love the natural resources, the lakes, the trails, uh, skiing in the winter. Yeah. 
and definitely water recreation, those things that, that I think people connect to and that become sort of the common ground, a connective tissue to then have other conversations, knowing that there's like a level of investment for the, the folks who have chosen this as, as a home of sorts, yeah. you know, a place they want to invest in. So that, that's the way I see it anyways. For me, that's true for me. So it's all, I'm, I'm just thinking, you tell me if this is diverging too far from your point, but you're kind of talking about places, yeah, but more like the experiences that these places are providing. So is mm-hmm. it more about the place or the experience or is it both? I guess what I'm wondering. Ah, yeah, interesting. Well, I guess you can't have the experience without the place, right? Right, that's uh, one thought. Yeah, so I guess I could have these same experiences. Like I'm a, I'm a recreational runner, and I love running this area. It's so beautiful. Uh, you people are terrain. fascinating to me, by the way. You runners, <laughs> I don't understand it, man. There's a quote from uh, if you watch Parks and Rec. Yeah, there's yeah. a <laughs> there's a quote. I. What does she say? She says, uh, she goes, yeah, jogging. I, I know it's good for you, but God, at what cost? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, yes, uh, this, this is the perspective that my wife holds as well. <laughs> She's just like, I don't, uh, I went for like a nine mile run yesterday. And oh my, God, it, it sounds horrible to me. But you know, I do, all messed up I do and, my own uh, cardio in different ways. So to each their own, yeah. man, but. God, exactly. the long distance, yeah. I just don't, I, I can't relate. But <laughs> but I get how it gets you outside and everything, and maybe that's what you're talking about, you know. It gets yeah, you totally. into those places in really wonderful ways. And I that's why, probably the only way I can understand people who do like triathlons, marathons and stuff, because it, it's, it really gets you into some beautiful spots. So to, so I don't, I don't want to detract you, but so please continue in, oh, that, no. in that regard, yeah. No, and then, you know, I would say there's great community in running too like i mean oh for sure that is running. a whole community right yeah just just running like the the hayden lake race a couple months ago you know cheering for other people uh encouraging them as they go along then crossing the finish line and and having somebody come up and say oh man you know i was two miles out and was really down and when you came by and cheered me on like that was just what I needed and you know, mm. strangers coming together and I love that component of it. Um, along with just the solitude of doing it too and backtracking a bit, like I, I could, I could definitely still do that no matter where I am, but it's not nearly as enjoyable doing it in a city environment as it is doing it in this geography and environment. Right. And maybe I'll find, a geography that's similar somewhere else, but it's always going to be different to some degree. So to me, there are definitely those when we were talking about, you know, kind of that, those moments we cherish or those experiences we cherish. Definitely like the first time you run a trail or you run a race, those things really hang on to, I think. Um, so yeah, that, that would, that would probably be the, an example of the, the connection that I have. And that one to me is kind of spiritual in that sense. Hmm. Um, I think of marathons, you know, running makes me think of inevitably in this area, it makes me think of the lake because there's so much running to do along the lake, you know, along the Centennial and Coeur d'Alene Lake Drive and there's some beautiful, beautiful spots all over the place along the lake and, and there's a lot of triathlon runs that go right along it and so the lake... I don't know. I just think of the lake so often in regards to Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. It's so easy to connect the two. Obviously, it's called Lake Coeur d'Alene, for goodness sake. <laughs> it's kind of hard to miss. <laughs> and yeah, but you know, here people, they decorate their houses about the lake. There's t-shirts about the lake. There's stickers. It's completely. it's completely, it is so much about what makes this place what it is. And so I'm imagining Lake Coeur d'Alene as if it were given this same you know, we're talking about this sort of reverence. And so I guess what I'm thinking of while we're in this mindset, you know, to, to kind of reconnect, let me bring this back a little bit. We're talking about what is part of our community. And I guess to in order to do this, we're sort of talking about what brings a community together, what, jo- what holds it together. And in so many ways, it's the lake in this 
town. Yeah. What would change? I don't know. What do you think would what do you think would change if we were to consider things like in a practical sense when we're writing laws and we're doing things in terms of events in our town and um, we're thinking of cleanup initiatives and, and whatnot? I'm trying to think of right. the best practical examples as possible. So use your imagination. <laughs> but what what do you think would change if we were give if we were really giving the lake the true reverence and it was really coming through in these practical ways? Because I don't believe that's really happening. There's like mines and stuff that are still polluting. The, you know what I mean? Yes. So like, what what sort of challenges could that raise? What do you think would change? What would happen if we were to really do this in perspective, like really revering this lake? For example. Well, yeah, and again, I think it goes back to stakeholders, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And talking about the that hierarchy, a personal hierarchy of of what's most important, and I, I think just based on the title of your podcast, I think we have a good idea of of how you value the lake, and you know, I think we're probably pretty aligned on that. Yeah. But yeah, there. I mean, I guess I always look at it through the lens of like the, the economic lens versus the environmental lens. And those things are so intertwined, as you said. Totally. In regard to our, our economy here is almost completely based on on the lake and the health of this lake and area lakes too right 100 so percent. Our... We, we wouldn't have the tourism income or revenue no. or any any of that without the lake mm-hmm. no and you know it's interesting to to read about the history of the lake and environmental concerns going quite a ways back but you know you'd see letters in the Coraline press in the 70s about grappling with issues surrounding pollution and the overall health of Lake Coeur And so, yeah, I think those, those things are so intertwined and, and at some point it becomes a tipping point to say, which thing do we have to really put our energy into and, and define as being critically important. And you could probably use this as a, a, a micro conversation of a, a really a macro issue, right? Yeah, um, Totally. Which you know I you love know. to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was thinking about this today, too, in the sense of traditionally local politics, community drives so much and influences what happens locally through your government. But I think we're in this weird yeah. time where where I think there there are these national conversations that are that are driving these local perspectives and all in turn time. what's that i said all the time especially right now yeah yeah so uh i think it's kind of a, a different dynamic than what we've experienced in the you know recent past yeah it's it's definitely an interesting confluence of uh a lot of different factors and some of them being environmental for sure yeah but um but i personally think yeah we we should get the, the lake great reverence and you know Long before we were here, the the Cordelline tribe uh, definitely revered the lake and the lands in this area, and um, I, I personally see that as an obligation to be a, a good partner and steward in maintaining yeah. the lands here and the health of the lake. I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because we can't talk about the lake and Cordelline and any of this really without bringing yeah. up where this has all come from and how that's changed because there's been such a change with how the lake has been revered over the years between the human beings around it and that that made me think i guess of uh earlier today i was working on some notes for another podcast episode another interview that we're actually going to be doing on environmentalism just kind of talking about different things about like what environmentalism has done really well, but also like if there's, there's plenty of critique of environmentalism. And so I wanted to kind of like open that up and go, is there some of this that we can really learn from? Of course there is. So let's like, look at this. So through that, I was kind of breaking apart the idea of how the relationship has sort of changed when we talk about ownership and we talk about belonging. 
I said ownership early. We're, when we say belonging, you know, you said or yourself, you know, there is a sense of ownership there. And I guess what what you mentioning the native, uh, like the Coeur tribe, it makes me think of um, how that relationship has fundamentally changed. If you think about the difference that an economic system such as capitalism, you know, this is a system where, and this is not critiquing it or anything like that. This is just saying, mm -hmm. just factually, capitalism is a system which kind of assumes this sort of sense of ownership. And so it obligates us to a, a state of stewardship, I mm -hmm. would say. However, it's also a system that very easily leads to this sort of exploitation of different areas of land and everything. And so this diverts from traditional mindsets of belonging with the land and communing with the land. Nobody owns anything or anybody. And so I, I can't help but bring that up when you mention that, because th this whole conversation kind of floats around that whole topic, if you think about it. I mean, for sure. I don't know yeah, where this, where I'm trying to go exactly with that. I just, <laughs> I'm just sort of bringing that up because it, that's a big central point in when you're talking about belonging to a community and, and being a part of it and everything. Um, you have yeah, to talk about I, the economy and this is all related. You do. Yeah. I think, I think you can't get around the fact that, that any issue that people are passionate about or invested in is going to be complicated. Right. Yeah. And so I think that you bringing that up is, is a really important and good aspect to sort of round this out in that sense of, of, you know, I think of that hierarchy again, and each stakeholder is going to have the mm -hmm. little triangle at the top is, is, is going to be probably quite different from the next, uh, in relation to, to the bottom. So, uh, although we can all agree that we want our community to thrive and succeed, I think it's really interesting how different the perception is of what uh, our community values. Um, and that's definitely been something I've been chewing on the last four months. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty big lump to chew on, to be honest. I yes. mean, cause I've been doing the same thing. I mean, I, this has shaped so many different discussions that I've had this whole idea yeah. behind like, well, what about like who we include in a community who's the who i'm talking about what is the who mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are there spaces experiences that could be considered this who like what belongs to a community what brings it together and when when mitch mentioned you know the idea of like salmon because we talked about fish yeah uh he said you know salmon if you think about so many specific examples about salmon bringing so many communities together Completely. Speaking speaking of like the Coeur d'Alene tribe, it, there's so many different examples of that. And it, so I just, there's a lot to chew on there. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so it's, we've, we've been coming back to the, to this question in, in many different, uh, in pretty much every discussion, I think of this season of, of what, what makes a community a community, who makes a community a community, because yeah. you have to come back to that. Well, and I, I think that, what you just said there is is really critical to the conversation we're having today. Like, it, instead of saying like, you know, who are we including? Like, framing it as who are who are we excluding in this? Who and are I, we I really excluding? Like, Maybe that's a better question. Yeah. yeah, who are we excluding in this system? And I I really like you know the broader thought of you know flora fauna wildlife. All these, all these things that we tend to put below us in a in a hierarchy, mm -hmm. just for conversation and thought. Like, what does it, you know, and specifically like Coraline, what does it look like to put that at the top and then have a conversation about what are our community values, right? If that is what we deem most important and most vital. Yeah, I think a lot of people get overwhelmed when we do nothing but address where the failure points are. Yeah. Because it's one thing to address those things. Yes, we do need to address those things. <laughs> for, sure. for sure. However, it's also extremely important to allow space for the conversation just to take place organically. Because I think it's, I think the overwhelming 
piece comes from like when we all we do is address the failure points in these things like hey there's the lake is being polluted by these mines okay yeah we've identified a problem (laughs) we've identified a problem yes but we haven't really allowed an opportunity to one have everyone in the room acknowledge the problem i think that's oftentimes just what gets overlooked especially with a lot of environmental movements and that's why i think that conversation is so important because if we can have the space to acknowledge the problem yes okay great is everyone on the same page perfect can we continue now awesome then we can kind of discuss these things about like listen this lake is important to us right we all agree on that perfect do we all agree that we don't want it to be dirty yes now let's talk about how we can get there and i don't think that it's possible in the current structure but yeah I, I do think those discussions are incredibly important and I think there's a lot of opportunity to have them. For sure. And I, I, I think it's really, my wife and I were talking about this um, recently in relation to a lot of issues uh, locally and nationally. And, and I remember this in a political science class of, of you know, talking about you know, what it would look like to put others' needs in front of your own, a lack of, self-gratification in some sort of when you engage in some sort of decision making mm-hmm. and you could call that compromise and i i think having conversations locally with people that's something that i've heard that people are are not willing to do right now and um and to me that's like that's extremely troubling mm-hmm. uh because i think in someone's in someone's life cycle, you're, you're always going to be at different ends of the spectrum as you go throughout. And so having empathy for people who are, who are not in a position of power and having the set of internal ethics Mm -hmm. to, to not overreach with that, I think is, is something that a lot of people grapple with. I grapple with that from time to time. Well, um, sure. I mean, it's yeah. a, <laughs> there's a lot of systems parenting within that. parenting. Oh gosh, I can't even get into that because I've ne- you know I've never done that, but I know that that's one of the most difficult <laughs> uh, things that you'll ever yes. do. Yes, one hundred percent. And I think on that topic, I think what makes that so sticky is you're you're having to address so many different industries and communities and cultures. It's be- mm-hmm. if if everything and everyone is to be addressed, and that's I mean that's why this is so difficult, right? That's why we're having this conversation. We're not really, and none of this whole podcast, by the way, is to solve anything, which is hilarious. Wow. Like we're we're gonna talk for yeah. like forty five minutes an hour, <laughs> and not solve a single thing, and. Yeah. But that's that's not exactly the point. I think that the space to have the ability to acknowledge that this is complicated and that's okay. It yeah, like yeah. because the only the only philosophy that I've seen get close to even a, the acknowledgement of the complexity of all of this is donut economics. And and I know we've mm-hmm. talked about this slightly. Mm-hmm. Kate Rayworth, the author, she talks a lot about how, for example, like the donut is supposed to be the sweet spot of mixing like social issues and environmental and land, you know, type issues. And the social is supposed to be kind of connected to the economical and stuff as well. And you can't address one without addressing the other because that provides this uh, imbalance. And so she's trying to use this donut as a visualization of a sweet spot we're supposed to get to. And I, I, that's one of the most helpful that I've seen, but the fact is that kind of thinking in terms of economics and economic thinking nowadays is really new. It's pretty cutting yeah. edge. Yeah. And I love it though, because I mean, it is encouraging at least because we have this person, Kate Rateworth saying, Hey, you know, all we talk about is growth, 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 growth in terms of economics. But like, it doesn't make any sense in nature to think of it that way. Nothing in nature just grows and grows and grows forever. It doesn't, happen like and if you think about how we structure our entire really existence it's usually pretty much everything we do is based on laws of nature like think lessons we've learned from nature entire scientific fields have been devoted to this biomimicry for example 
economics should be no exception is what I'm trying to say. What she says is, you know, we, we ought to be looking at this less in terms of just like, how do we just grow forever? And more like, <laughs> how do we thrive forever? That's a different question. Right. Completely. Yeah. Well, that's all in the, the metric that you use to measure it. Right. So, right. Um, I think about this a lot with just, you know, uh, my role as a librarian at Arcado College and, you know, working with students from different pathways, some mm. being in the arts and humanities, others being in business, others being vocational and how in a lot of ways, you know, when you, when you choose a career, it sort of aligns with your own personal uh, characteristics and your, you know, what makes you feel like you are accomplishing something at the end of the day and you are contributing to self-growth and, and hmm. your, your community, right? Your, the, the culture. And uh, sometimes I think, it, you know, definitely economically speaking that, that there's kind of a binary with that and there's a good outcome or a bad outcome. And so with that, especially financially, you're, you're always going to in the short term value a decision that is a, is a plus for a financial bottom line or, a, or mm-hmm. an outcome, but it's, it's hard to measure that, uh, the long-term effects and, and can you be sure that you have all the variables to assess and, analyze and make a a decision that is holistic in that way. And I I think that's challenging and, and I (laughs) I mean, well, you know, I, I really do agree. I mean, you know, I've had a discussion with, um, some time ago now with Brad Thrasher about sustainable how like building, uh, um, Mm -hmm. sustainable housing in that regard, like building housing and building development and stuff like that. And, and just the the project planning side is made to be in this. If you're trying to be really sustainable, a lot of the time the planning takes quite a bit longer, at least on a larger scale, like yeah, like a neighborhood. That that, that's what the kind of stuff he's working on is like a whole neighborhood living mm-hmm. type, not like a Riverstone type size, but sure. like that that type of situation, like a, a you know housing development type situation. And there's so much involved in the planning because, I mean, you're talking, I mean, you're, you're on the soil for goodness sake, start there. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much to consider. And then you get into the housing and everything. You're, you're absolutely right is what what I'm just saying. I mean, that, that's one (laughs) example. Sustainable building is one example, let alone things like simpler ones. Like, well, it's not even that more simple to say like gardening is that that's not even that much more simple, is it? I'm intimidated right. yeah. as crap to garden, <laughs> but I want to do it. Yeah, I, I, I hear you there. I and that that is, and I think it is a personality, you know, component too. Of of I do feel like sometimes I get overwhelmed with starting new hobbies or because just due to my genetics, my perspective is I should know how to do the thing before I do it. Right. Um, which is, you know, completely runs counterintuitive to learning, you know, a new skill or something. But again, as I age, I feel like I've gotten much better with that. But yeah, that's, that's a really great example.
it's one thing, like we're talking about, I mean, we've been imagining this new collective awareness <laughs> of our new, like, being like, oh, we're all aware of our lo local flora and fauna now. How wonderful and great for us. And we can imagine a new life that way. That would be cool. So we're, it's one thing to imagine like developing this awareness of, of this environment around us. It's an, it, you know, to the level of affecting real things like law and education and for sure. different things. But it's another, and it's another thing like to see the path way to that reality. There's a lot of unresolved, I can't, you know me, I can't help but mention the unresolved grief and pain that there is there. You know, I think of mass extinctions and we're witnessing quite a f few of those, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like huge, like, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it because it's really depressing. The the disappearing rainforest, we've been talking about that for a long time, but it's especially bad right now social justice issues that all of these connect to, um, you know, and the fear of climate change and the emotional roller coaster that, that a lot of people have found themselves, uh, weighted down by with climate change. Um, it differs with mm -hmm. different people. So I'm wondering with all of this and with the context of our whole conversation, do you have any ideas on some theoretical, you know, f theoretical first steps and you can be as an abstract or, pragmatic sure. here as you want yeah I, and it's funny I, I think you kind of mentioned what my my first step would be um and specifically when you said unresolved grief uh, uh mm -hmm. that that's it i think is just the acknowledgments of people's of people's pain whether it is intergenerational or in an experience that an individual has had in real time. Specifically, I think about this a lot, you know, where I work, uh, you know, is, is sacred lands, of the Coraline tribe. And, you know, I, I think about as each time we would meet as a committee of American Indian advisory committee. And again, I, uh, I haven't said this, but, you know, again, this is, these are all just my personal thoughts and I'm not a, representative of the college and on this podcast but, yes indeed i was uh, going to think of opening uh, with that but i kind of forgot <laughs> no that's that's fine i uh but you know in in those committee meetings you know th there are members of the quarterline tribe and i always just wonder what it feels like for them to visit the campus and you know it's a place of education and sort of self-building in a lot of ways but it also must be you know painful to come back to this place that is, you know, no longer theirs, mm -hmm. um, when it had meant so much to their history. So talking about kind of going back to where we started with that sense of belonging, like I would, uh, I would think that for them, there's, you know, a strong sense of belonging. Um, these are not conversations that I've had with anybody from the tribe, but, um, I think it's pretty clear in, in how invested they are in the college in um, you know, partnerships and renaming buildings with the Coeur d'Alene tribe language. So there, there are translations all throughout campus that right. honor the tribe. And, and there's a whole story tour that's being built to do the same. Oh, cool. And to, to me, that is, that is a form of acknowledgement. And that's not to say that, you know, people have to feel guilty or bad currently about those things you could say oh that was centuries ago but i think when you don't acknowledge that that everybody's experienced that in their own lives where you've had a bad experience with somebody and then the next time you see them they're pretending like everything's fine nothing happens <laughs> when in reality you're like you know that thing that happened was pretty painful and uncomfortable for yeah, me and pretty you know, bad right can yeah. we talk about that even, for a second? <laughs> even if you don't agree, I, I just want the opportunity to share that so right. we can all move on and understand where everyone's coming from. And I, I think that's a component of good faith building and trust, you know? Absolutely. So that I guess that's where my mind went to. And, and that's not too abstract. No, not at all. Fear feels uh, pragmatic, but also I think in our current climate, problematic but yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, <laughs> cause what you're talking about is something that's very human mm -hmm. and it's, I mean, it's pretty base level. We're talking about like just acknowledging what, 
you know, our feelings, yeah. how that, how that yeah. felt. Um, and, you know, one of the conversations that we're having this, that we had this season as well is, is very much focused on inner work and trauma. And a lot of what we're talking about, you know, I think racialized trauma. And I I haven't read it yet, but I've got this book called My Grandmother's Hands. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. I I cannot wait to read it. It's, you know, I've got a growing stack of books. You know how that goes. And I'm reading (laughs) as fast as I can, man. But I can't I can't do it quick enough. (laughs) But yeah, you know, on that note, I just I finished recently. I finished uh, The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller, which is all about grief. Mm -hmm. Fantastic book. And and um in fact, in that book, it talks about environmental grief, which is not something that a lot of people even think about. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. think about that. He talks about like, yeah, you know, we feel, you know, I mentioned earlier to bring this back is, you know, the emotional roller coaster and ride that people feel when we get overwhelmed with information about climate change and what it, what it might be and what it is and what it, I don't think it is and all this stuff like the, the, the information consumption just is overwhelming. I can understand how that would cause so much of a fear and a, or an emotional roller coaster. And, and so he talks about that. We need to feel that stuff. We need to be okay yeah. and, and be given right. this in our communities. Since we're talking about community, we need to be able to allow space for that in our communities to be able to acknowledge these things that are indeed unresolved when we don't allow ourselves to feel these things. We are doing ourselves a disservice and we are also doing a disservice to the people that we live with because, you know, there's a quote that I'm thinking of by uh, Peter Rollins, who's an Irish philosopher. And he says, if you cannot speak your brokenness, your brokenness will speak for you. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's one of those that you hear and you're like, ouch, I don't want to hear that again. It's too too early for that, you know? (laughs) Wait until the afternoon after lunch to tell me that one. But it's it's so true. It's it's, uh, and it, I think it very much ties what I'm trying to say together. Oh, and, and when you meet people in this world, that it, that's very apparent. You know. Yeah. Uh, I think we've all come into contact with people who outwardly express that, even though when asked direct questions about what what has happened. Uh, they don't feel comfortable answering those, but no. in, in reality, no. the, their grief is speaking for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, essentially, what we're trying to say here is that we've there's a huge. I would go. I would say an obligation that we have to ourselves first, and then our communities, both, um, to yeah. focus on this pain, both just on our own like <laughs> that's the first challenge because we can't collectively for sure absorb and and compost this pain so to speak unless we've first been able to do it on our own and so i guess that's what a lot of this that's so funny how so many of these conversations of mine maybe it's just because i i keep focusing on this but it keeps <laughs> coming back to this you know i think there's really a huge thing that's why francis weller was really a, a fascination for me because He's changing the world, man, and all he's doing essentially <laughs> can be boiled down to getting people in a room together and crying and absorbing yeah. this yeah. grief. People come from all over the world to his practice in San Francisco to do this practice, and uh, there's something to this. So, so with all this, <laughs> what are some directions that you yourself in the education field where can you sort of point people towards to sort of open people up to more ideas surrounding this type of stuff book it could be books it could be a politician it could be a philosophy a practice what what would you uh what would you suggest to folks well i've got a few things here but just to uh, circle back to your last uh mention there sure um i think you know that we often collectively don't allow ourselves to, it seems like the currency of the day is rage or glee and anything else. We don't really want to allow ourselves to feel these things Mm -hmm. and to acknowledge them. So I think it would collectively be helpful uh, if we were 
able to allow each other to feel more comfortable, you know, feeling shame, humility, everything in between, because those are the things that we grow from. So Mm. here's to hoping that we collectively can make some progress in that area. But yes, indeed. um, (laughs) Here's to that. I do have, I have a couple books, I have a couple documentary films, and then I have an artist mentioned. So excellent. Um, the book I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying because I am a runner is called Send a Runner, A Navajo Honors the Long Walk. And this book follows the long walk of the Navajo tribe. And this is, it's an interesting, like, historical look, sort of paired with this gentleman, Edison Estites, who is Navajo, uh, on the 150th anniversary, he decided to run the 330 miles that comprised the long walk of his ancestors. And so the gentleman that is authoring this book, his name is Jim Christophic, and he sort of pairs each day of Edison's running with the the land in that section and gives the the history in relation to the long walk and gives a, a historical uh, context uh, while sort of honoring this this run. So I'm that halfway through cool. it. It's pretty enjoyable. Um, and I should mention that most of these things that I'm talking about today are available at North Idaho College, most of libraries. So if anybody Sweet. wants to check it out there, they can feel free. The other book, which I have not read, but is on my reading list, and I'm going to knock it out before 2021, is Under White Sky by elizabeth colbert under white sky yeah under a white sky a white sky and so this is it's kind of about geoengineering but overlaps with environmentalism technology society all of these things and she she meets with biologists uh, who are working to in the areas of preservation all throughout the world as well as developing interventions to help mitigate climate change and uh i think the interesting component i heard a a conversation with her is just kind of our societal habit of of sort of leaning on technology to address all of these symptoms rather than dealing with the root cause and you know again that touches on every aspect of culture and life and really you know i see this in my own life too of of going like oh i need to i need to you know lose a few pounds or something and it's just like well okay i could get more exercise but really if i'm being honest with myself it's like you know buckling down and and deciding to not eat certain things that are not good for me and um but that give me immediate gratification but long term Mm -hmm. uh, not as much so uh that one's on my my list so those are my books documentaries these are a little bit older but i saw these this year and really enjoyed both of them and the first one is called tar creek tar creek tar creek and it kind of mirrors a little bit what has happened here but on a much smaller scale or a much larger scale related to the mining uh impact on lake Coeur d'Alene. And so it takes place in Northeast Oklahoma and focuses on this, this, uh, town that was basically just devastated by this, uh, and is now an EPA Superfund site. This is from 2009. And it was so bad there that the federal government came in and bought out homeowners, which, you know, also had issues too, because some of them felt like the, the price they were paid for their land was far less than uh, what was actually valued at. But just just the scale of devastation and talking to local residents who, you know, had generations lived in this this town, but really could no longer sustain just because it was so, from a health perspective, unhealthy to live there. Which then kind of feeds into my second documentary, which is called Source to Sea, the Columbia River Swim. This is from 2006. Source to Sea. Yeah, I think this one you can watch online for free. Uh, I think if you YouTube it or Vimeo, you'll find it. But this gentleman, Christopher Swaim, in 2003, 
this this film is from 2006, but uh, okay. he did this swim in 2003. He swam from the source of the Columbia River out to the ocean and goes through that whole journey. And again, similar to Cinder Runner, talks about the the history of each section as he goes through it and talks about the ramifications of the environmental impacts that industry has had on it. Specifically, mm-hmm. the one that connected for me was the Hanford nuclear site because I have family from that area a couple generations back and, you know, uh, some overlap in the, in the um, type of environmental impact uh, from Tar Creek and source to sea that just will generationally have lasting impacts. Mm. So those two were really great. And then lastly, I would uh, encourage people to check out this artist He's a wood carver. He's a contemporary artist. He's a musician. His name is Nicholas Gawanin, and his last name is G A L A N I N. And actually had an opportunity to speak with him. He gave a presentation for the American Indian Advisory Committee meeting. We're going to air that conversation uh, probably in the spring. Hmm. Uh, um, and so I'll share that with you uh, if you. Would like to see it and you can you can share it out too but um but he recently did this um uh installation for the desert x art festival in outside of uh, palm springs california and it was called indian land and basically it was a sort of in the same vein of of uh the hollywood sign put up indian land out in the desert to sort of uh remind people that that you know, all throughout the United States, this originally was Indian land and mm-hmm. and what the cultural impacts of that have been as well as the environmental impacts. So yes, it can, his work is just really brilliant to me. It's, it's very accessible. Uh, the, the, um, the concepts that he comes up with are, are simple and that's not, that, that sounds like kind of insulting, but I think that's the genius of his work is that it is super accessible and that's something that can spark conversations just seeing a sign that says Indian land from the freeway, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, would, it yeah. takes a certain sense of self-regulation to be able to provide something that is so simple and yet so, you know, thought provoking and uh, that, that accessibility is really, I think a key factor in starting these mm-hmm. sticky conversations. For sure, because they are difficult conversations. And he just had a, an album come out on Sub Pop, uh, really interesting kind of mix of house and electronic. And the other thing that I really appreciate about his work is he, he really is able to bridge sort of traditional components with contemporary art, which I, I think is something that people really haven't seen on a larger scale in the art world. Um, there have definitely been artists who have been doing that for quite a while. But uh, again, I think with Edward Curtis photos, everybody sort of sees Native American culture as being something in the past rather than something in the present. And I think he's mm. a really strong voice to help um, make folks realize that, you know, uh, Native culture is is thriving and is here. And, and He's very much um, here, very much alive, very much present yeah. and not not a thing that was <laughs> and deserves to be a part of the conversation. So absolutely. Um, he's, he's been involved with this larger project called land back. And so, you know, just the name of it sounds like, Oh, okay. They, they just want folks to give them their land back, but really it's kind of talking about it in a, in a, a more uh, broader conceptual way and saying like, you know, what would it look like to, if land is up for sale, um, you know, giving first rights to local tribes to purchase the land, what does that look like? What are these small conversations or small gestures that can have a, a huge and lasting impact? So, so that would be my, my last inclusion of if folks are looking to kind of experience or engage with something that might be a little bit more expanding in regards to perspectives and thoughts fantastic that's more than i could have ever hoped for (laughs) (laughs) i think that's wonderful i mean i appreciate you sharing i know you're always a wealth of 
of uh, resources as far as that goes. As a librarian, we do love to share information. So it is really, again, talking about self-gratification. Yeah. This is very much it. But, uh... I'm telling you, man, when <laughs> right. in doubt, ask a librarian. It's never been proven wrong. Here, here. <laughs> Thank you so very much for joining us today, folks. Do you have thoughts, opinions, topics... Do you want to get involved? Must we have words? Remember, you can reach out via the website at sustainablecultureodcast.com. Click contact, get in touch with me. Let's talk. Remember to like and subscribe. Be sure to share if you please. Look out for the next episode coming January 28th. But for now, this has been the Sustainable Culture Podcast. I have been Jet. I'll see you next time, guys.